0: At the beginning of this year, 2021, I finished reading Yuval Harari's most excellent book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. It's one of those mind-blowing books that will keep you thinking about it for months afterward. One of the ideas he puts forth as a contributing factor to why our species, Homo sapiens, have outpaced all the other species on the planet is our ability to create myths that everybody can attach themselves to. One of his examples is the creation of the Limited Liability Corporation and something that lawyers call a legalized fiction. I know, that sounds crazy, but hear me out. Here's Harari speaking at a TED conference in 2015. The most important actors today in the global economy are companies and corporations. Many of you perhaps work for a corporation like Google or Toyota or McDonald's, What exactly are these things? They are what lawyers call legal fictions. They are stories invented and maintained by the powerful wizards we call lawyers. I bring this up because in my last CSO gig, the company founder was from Israel. And although there were no official laws on the books, the US federal government refused to buy our products at scale because the founder wasn't an American. Our solution? We created something called a legal entity, a piece of legal fiction written by a lawyer that created a federal version subset of the actual company with a U.S. citizen as the president and a U.S. citizen as the CSO. The Israeli founder wasn't part of this new legal entity. And that broke the dam. We can now sell to the U.S. government at scale, all because of a piece of paper, a legal fiction, crafted by our corporate legal wizards, who I'm sure all belong to the House of Slytherin. No offense to my lawyer friends. In last week's show, we talked about the bewildering array of international, U.S. federal, and U.S. state cybersecurity compliance laws. And one way we can reduce the complexity and scope of that environment is a judicial use of these legal entity fictions. Let's find out how. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Tom Quinn is the T. Rowe Price CISO, a regular at the CyberWire hash table, and a security veteran that has spent over two decades working at financial institutions like State Street, BYN Mellon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and now going on six years with T. Rowe Price. I started out by asking him how senior leaders at financial institutions think about compliance, not just at T. Rowe Price, but the entire finance sector. How do they approach compliance laws? Is it a burden? Do they embrace it? Or do they push it down into the hierarchy?
1: Every senior leader that I've talked to on the business side in financial services, most people would say that regulation is a good thing. It makes it clear what's expected and that you have ground rules in place. And I think that's important. Depending on... Maybe the size of your company and the complexity of your company, you may have different ways that compliance is actually implemented, depending on the size, scope, scale, and what the regulation says. You may have technically oriented compliance people, or you may have compliance oriented technology people. <laughs> and and I think you actually need just a bit of both. I'll include business people, right? You know, you can have business-oriented compliance people or compliance-oriented business people. And I think it works best when you have a culture of compliance, then everyone's grounded enough in it as well. And, and I think it's also important too, right, is that in many cases, right, these compliance requirements, how they get implemented matters. And I think if you have compliance oriented business people, they'll see maybe the best way to be compliant. And and if you don't have enough knowledge about the give and take of what the compliance regime is really looking for, you may pick a way to implement compliance that's very costly to you and may even miss the mark right for what you think. So I think it's important that there's a clear dialogue in place as well for both sides and it should not be seen as adversarial. I think in some cases people may think that there's some adversarial relationship that needs to happen. I, I don't, I've don't. i never viewed it that way. I think the regulators really do care about their remit. I think compliance teams care about their remit. I think business teams care about it too and, and tech teams as well. And I think when you're communicating effectively, talking about what is working, what's not working, giving appropriate feedback, and regulators will listen. I'm here to tell you, right, that regulators want the feedback. When you have that that regular dialogue, it's super beneficial. And I've always taken the viewpoint of transparency is valuable, visibility is valuable too, and communication is key and and making sure that the regulators understand that you care and that you intended to be compliant.
0: I've been evaluated by other organizations in my past career and it was mostly an exercise in interpreting what the rule said you were supposed to do, having a plan to accomplish that, and then demonstrating to the evaluator that you're making the best effort to get there. Is that what it is with these things too? In general, I would say yes.
1: There are certain compliance regimes where there really is very little room for misinterpretation and very little room for, you know, doing best effort. I'll, I'll give you one example, right, where you really don't have a lot of wiggle room, and that's for communication retention and surveillance. Like, you you are required to keep, you know, communication about business as such in the financial services industry, client communication. It's not okay to create a a retention program and not hit the mark, it really could be problematic. It's like, okay, so we're gonna do this. You have to
0: demonstrate to the auditor or the regulator that you did it. That's right. And it will be different across every institution, right? So it's really an ability, how you decide to
1: present that information is important, right? Presentation is is critical, right? To be able to demonstrate and present that you're being compliant You may be compliant in a multitude of different ways, right? For the email example, like, hey, you have to retain and you must demonstrate that you can retain, there must be a hundred different products and a hundred different ways to demonstrate that you're compliant. I, I think that's where there's often a dialogue about being the spirit and the letter of the law. And I think that there is some flexibility about how you're being compliant, but you still have to demonstrate.
0: Do most financial institutions try to take this on themselves and they, like you said, buy some tech, some GRC tool to help them do that? Or do most of them outsource it to a big uh, consulting firm like Accenture
1: or something like that? Or is it a mix of those things? Again, you know, it really depends a lot on how the company operates currently. Like if they have a large investment in compliance people. And technology people have a view on compliance. They may do it themselves and maybe even run a tool. And in some cases, you may have a a service that you use that could be outsourced. The service could be outsourced. But compliance, regardless of maybe the how of implementation, how much help you're getting, the company is required to be compliant. You can't ever use the justification that, a large consulting firm is doing this and they're the reason why we're not compliant, there's no way you can say that because otherwise you you would demonstrate, right, that you're not serious about it. Right. For last week's show,
0: one compliance consultant estimated that many of his big clients are spending 5% of revenue just to collect data for compliance and demonstrate compliance. Is that a ballpark figure that you agree with
1: or is that way off base? I I think your mileage may vary. And I think, Rick, a lot of what you'll find is the how could be costly, like very costly. So if somebody was spending 5% of revenue, the one thing I would question is how early are you on your compliance journey? Have you built in compliance after the fact, right? After system design or business workflow design? And then are you recreating data sets? Are you leveraging data that may already be available? That may be easier. And then how are you using the tool? There are so many things that come to mind when I hear something like 5% of revenue, because that is a very, very big number. It's a huge number. And I (laughs) I want
0: to be clear. He wasn't saying that he recommended that you spend 5%. He said that his clients were spending 5% on compliance. Is like... Wow. That's a lot. That's a big number.
1: <laughs> yeah, big number. I, I but I, I, it just makes me ask a lot of questions. Like one, are you still compliant after spending 5%? <laughs> yeah, good point. But I think that but earlier about like the how and the how matters, right? It's being efficient in spending for compliance, I think is key. Like it's critically key. And I think it goes to the heart of who's creating the requirements at your company Depending on what your answer is and then who builds it for you, you could get into some very complicated things and maybe there's an easier solution to demonstrate compliance. We think that kind of through, like how much money is it costing? Could we be more efficient and be compliant? You can't be either or, right? It really is. How can we do this better? How can we be more efficient? How can we better demonstrate and more easily demonstrate to the regulators that we're doing things in some cases, right, maybe we're over demonstrating. And I think in some cases it's important to understand if you've gone further than required to meet a regulatory need, and that's why I think it's critically important to have a dialogue with the regulators to make sure that you got it right, like, does this look right? Do you think you need more? Is this too much for you? And, And I think that constant refreshing of what you're doing and why is important. Just like you need to have architecture and engineering for performance, for systems, for maybe security of systems, for maintenance of systems, you need to take the same kind of architecture and engineering approach to the regulatory compliance nature of systems as well. And I think the sweet spot, and that's the way that we think about it, is we should be building our operational Reporting and our engineering designs and our architectural frameworks with regulatory response in mind, because if you bake that in,
0: uh, you could get efficiencies. Well, it's a complicated environment. I and, you know I really just started looking at this last week with any detail, and I found fifty plus laws on the books: international, U.S. federal, state laws. I fully admit that I didn't get all of them. Trying to keep track of that its for your, any organization has got to be an immense operation. Are there a handful of these things that you pay attention to? Is there, well, we got to do these three and we'll worry about all these others later? Or is it, we're just going to do them all and I don't know, what's the approach there?
1: No, it, it, it's a great question. So there are primary regulators to most businesses. And I think that you would certainly be spending time to make sure that You're meeting your primary regulator's needs. You're regularly talking to them. They may come audit you, but we pay attention to the regulations that apply to our business. One of the things I find that's somewhat a challenge, I think, for the way that companies and their systems are designed is often legal entity and regulations apply to legal entities. They don't really apply to the concept of a company writ large. They apply to legal entities. And sometimes in legal entities, you could have humans and systems in there. And sometimes legal entities are only for tax reasons. So depending on, on the legal entity and the regulation that you've got in front of you, what compliance means may look different. And then how much you need to be involved maybe would differ too. And I think it's important to make sure that you're kind of well read on, on what regulations apply, what legal entity scoping you have. And often the first question that I ask when we're having a legal entity or a regulatory discussion, which is what data is in scope, what systems are in scope, what employees are in scope, because sometimes what will happen is, is let's say, I don't know. So let's apply this regulation to the entirety of the company. Well, if your company's small, maybe a couple hundred people, and you, you only do one thing, and you probably have one regulator, it it probably works out just fine.
0: So, uh, help me understand that: what the legal entity is is a subset
1: of a TRO
0: price. It's a That's smaller right. business unit that does maybe financial, I you mean, know, credit cards or something, as opposed to something else. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So it's it's a great question and and it's taken me years (laughs) of focus to think through things like this. So, but a financial services firm is a company, but really when you look at it from a organizational document perspective, you're really a Delaware based incorporated company. Mm -hmm. Well, you may not have any employees in Delaware. Yeah. That struck me as odd. The first time I kind of went through this like, Well, what's a legal entity? So an example could be right. You're in a large financial services firm and you have an asset management business, trading business, private wealth management business. What you really are is you're a holding company, which is a legal entity. And then often what happens is that trading business, which is often a broker dealer, that broker dealer needs a license and is a legal entity. The insurance company needs a license and is a legal entity. The asset manager needs a license and is it a legal entity. Insurance is regulated by state governments. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a legal entity and a license to sell insurance. It's a legal piece of paper, right, that delineates that stuff. Right? For most yeah, no. people, it may just be a piece of paper. I have to let you know, it's not how regulators see it. Ah, I see, yeah. That, that is a... Yeah. That is a covenant with a regulator and a business and now the piece of paper absolutely allows you mm-hmm. to operate the way that you need to but what what i've observed over the years i've been doing this in financial services is the regulators are really holding people accountable to those pieces of paper and well, that helps reduce uh,
0: the scope, right? That's what you
1: were getting to before. It says, here's the scope of what we're looking at, right? C- correct. Right. And that's exactly what's in those legal entity yeah. documents. I think the challenge is very rarely are those documents used to build systems. Very rarely are those documents used necessarily, right, to hire people or to get a building, right? Or sometimes to buy a service. But the thing for it is, if, It's important to have a legal entity lens, right? It's not just your company. It's not just an email system, right? Legal entity matters. So when the state of Arkansas has a different set of requirements than the state of Maine on how you're supposed to do data protection or privacy alerting, like that gets complicated. Like the first thing you ask is, well, Yeah, that's right. How many people from Maine do we have their clients? How many people from Maine do we have their employees? Well, it's
0: even more comprehensive when you're just talking about privacy law, right? Because I'm guessing you guys fall under three different laws. The European Union's GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. California's got two laws that you have to follow. And those are just three that I discovered (laughs) doing a Google search. I'm sure there's many more. How do you guys keep track of all that complexity?
1: For small firms that have limited scope, you could probably keep it in your head, right? You, you probably know who your clients are, where they're at, or maybe you only operate in one state or something. But the complexity happens when you, you're operating in multiple states in the U.S., multiple countries in the world, but you're using a shared system of record. If you've not designed legal entity, in the way that you hold data, provide access, it could be very costly. And in some cases, you may get into that 5% of revenue discussion, depending on what exactly you're trying to be compliant with. In the financial sector, are compliance programs
0: part of the information security program that you run, or are you a supporting player to a larger compliance effort that the bank has to deal with?
1: I'm going to say it just depends. I'll lay them out, right? So compliance in financial services, it is a corporate function. And you'll have compliance officers assigned, depending on the nature of the culture you have and the history that you have, compliance officers may be the ones who demonstrate compliance. And in some cases, it won't be compliance officers. It'll be the, the operations teams, whether they're technology or the business Often you may hear the phrase line one, Mm -hmm. line one employees, right? They're demonstrating compliance. What I also find too is that most compliance teams are business oriented. They understand the compliance of the business and the rules that may be in place. It's less likely that you'll find compliance people that are technology oriented. And what I mean by that is, Technology is opaque in general to most people that don't do technology. And cybersecurity sometimes looks like magic to most people who don't practice cybersecurity. Well, there are not very many, I've not come across them, compliance people that are very technical. Often they have business backgrounds. There have been cases where I've played a dual role of being responsible for compliance, and responsible for the compliance-oriented aspects of things, the technology and Mm cyber-oriented compliance itself. Because I knew what the regulations said. I really knew what they meant. And that blending of knowledge of being a compliance-oriented technology and cyber professional, I was able to say, I know what this means, or I know what we need to do, or we're already doing it.
0: As you know, I'm spending a lot of time discussing cybersecurity first principles on this show. It's my effort to identify the essential strategies that we're all using to protect our organizations. For the last 18 months, I've identified four big ones that we should be paying attention to. Zero trust, intrusion kill chain prevention, resilience, and risk forecasting. What I'm asking you is, do you think compliance is a strategy that needs to be on the same level as those? Or is it buried somewhere deep underneath one of them? Resilience, probably. Is it that important, or is it uh, just another function somewhere down the path?
1: I, I, I think it's incorporated into the things that you were talking about, and I don't think it's buried at all. Speaking about first principles, I think you've just described right what most regulators are really asking for. Now, how they ask it, the language they use, the specificity they may provide on how you do it. But it's, it's basically those things. And well, I guess the question I'm asking is the penalties
0: that you could get from non-compliance. Are they material enough to the company? That's the reason they should be at the same level as the other ones. I agree with you that we'll gather data from all those strategies to help show that we're compliant. But is compliance a material worry? It, it, it is, but
1: there's a right way and a wrong way to do
0: things.
1: <laughs> and resilience is more than just saying i've got another server on a rack somewhere for a trading system that trades a million dollars a second or something that's not okay right hot hot standby mm-hmm. multiple servers like there's a right way to be thinking about those things based on what you're doing and and what i wanted to drive at is across the board at firms i've worked at compliance was a very important outcome it was architected and designed to be not only compliant, to meet minimum requirements, but to meet the business's requirements as well. So it wasn't really seen necessarily as a separate thing. It was in the same breath, right? What are the business requirements? What are the regulatory compliance that we need to do? What are our client requirements? And let's build our practices, our systems, and our protections to meet them. I've not been at firms where compliance has been used as a stick to have something done. Usually we were already doing that kind of work. We had that kind of do care mentality in place. So compliance was right along there with us as a design criteria for, again, systems and programs. Well, I guess the question I'm having is if it is true that some organizations spend
0: 5% of revenue trying to be compliant, why are we doing
1: that? Right, y- y- yes, that is exactly the right question. I I, I find that number well, broadly well, whatever to be the number is. Shocking.
0: If, if you're let's just say it's 100 bucks a year, I, you know, way over on the other side. But the question is why are we spending that money? Are we afraid that penalties will be material to the business or is there some other reason that we're
1: doing this? If you have a license to operate and that license has requirements, and we'll call those, you know, regulations. Mm-hmm you're obligated to do that. It it would be irresponsible to say, give me a license to operate a legal entity and then say, I don't care because the license is a quid pro quo. I'll give you a license and you promise to operate this way. It's part of doing that. I mean, you're obligated to operate in the way that's been outlined. Yeah. What I find though is it's all in the how.
0: My point Tom is that, Every organization, especially finance, you know, we're spending resources to be compliant. And is it because we're worried about the penalty? Just this summer, the European Union fined Amazon almost a billion dollars for fines because they did something wrong.
1: But that's a drop in the bucket to them. It doesn't hit that 5% threshold to your point at all. These compliance regimes in many cases have been there for decades and people just are used to them. GDPR is new. Mm-hmm. It's five years old or whatever it may be, 10 years old or something. Uh, but it's causing shifts that they're going to cost you money. Right? So in some cases, that 5% could be new regulation system or business process wasn't designed for it, needs to be retrofitted. Right. So another option that someone could pick is this legal entity in this country with this regulation, we're not gonna do business in that country anymore. So I had this view, this
0: diagram in my head, you know, where we have these four big strategies across the bottom. And then in order to make it efficient, we have to automate that. So DevOps cuts across all of them. But from this discussion, what I'm hearing is compliance cuts across all four of them also, right underneath the DevOps. So
1: they they do, and the thing, Rick, is that, before it was just a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and what people, what some people may not have realized is it was much more than a piece of paper. It was a covenant, mm. and that regulators were maybe more inclined now to exercise the right to audit or exercise the right of compliance.
0: That was Tom Quinn, the T. Rowe Price CISO, and a regular guest at the CyberWire hash table. And that's a wrap. Next week, we are introducing a new CSO Perspective segment called the CyberWire Sand Table. You don't want to miss that. But as always, if you agree or disagree with anything I've said or anything our guest has said on this episode, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can continue the conversation there. Or if you prefer, you can send questions and comments to csop at thecyberwire.com. That's C-S-O-P, the at sign, thecyberwire, all one Word.com. The Cyberwire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.